1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and I am once again back here with my good buddy, Blaine Dowler. Thanks for coming on, Blaine. Oh, thanks for having me back. Oh, it's my pleasure. And anybody who does not realize that Blaine is making a sacrifice, you have to realize that we are in two different time zones. And uh, Blaine is effectively Andy Leylanding me, or I'm effectively Andy Leylanding him. Because where I'm recording, it is we are recording in the morning, and it is now 7.50 a.m. here. And being an early riser, that's not a problem for me. Blaine, what time is it there? It's 5.50 right now. So there you go. <laughs> so thanks for getting up and coming home with me this morning, Blaine. Oh, no problem. Glad to be here. Thankfully, I am very much a morning person. And we are breaking format today. Uh, and we're actually following one of Blaine's suggestions with the upcoming releases of Captain Marvel and Avengers Endgame. And... Excuse me. The level of excitement that is uh, building for them. Uh, Blaine said, well, "Had you had you thought about doing a uh, overview of the Marvel Cinematic Universe going into those two movies?" And I had not. But then when I did give it some thought, I thought, "Yeah, that'd be kind of cool because the Marvel Cinematic Universe is a cohesive unit, unlike anything I've ever seen before." Uh, when you consider the number of movies, the interconnection of them all, uh, I don't think there's anything really truly like it. The closest things I can come up with are maybe the uh, Universal Monster series, which didn't really worry about continuity all that much and didn't have quite the uh, prolific and uh, energetic release schedule that this has. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, it also otherwise... was not planned to be interconnected when they started making them. That was really a marketing gimmick when they were halfway through to say, how can we boost sales? They're dropping off. Hey, let's have them meet. Yeah. And and that wasn't even all that far into it. I mean, we got, you know, uh, Dracula, Frankenstein, Werewolf, Mummy, uh, and we had Bride of Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. and I think Invisible Man was in there as well. And Son of Dracula, I believe. But then all of a sudden we started with, you know, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and, you know, like we didn't have that many movies before they started to interconnect them. And it wasn't part of a grand scheme like this is, uh, you know, the other thing, if we wanted to talk about, you know, body of work, people will point to the James Bond series. But that is not nearly as uh, as wide ranging as this. It's, you know, we've had one one main character who's been portrayed by numerous actors now, which was never the intent anyway. Uh, and that's really just sequels, and those sequels sometimes do kind of forget prior continuity. Uh, and, you know, we've had reboots, we've had changes in continuity, we've had all sorts of things with James Bond. Now, I love James Bond, don't get me wrong, but this is a different animal. The Marvel Universe is, uh, you know, it's an attempt to recreate what they did in the comic books with creating this universe, and it's been tremendously successful we're going to kind of go through the 
you know, movies to date and just kind of, you know, hit on each one and move along. Uh, I'm not going to even ask for Jaws scale ratings on them uh, because I want to keep the door open to, to, to doing individual episodes on ones that we have not yet covered at this point. There have been a few covered. Uh, but, but I'll tell you just, you know, up front, for me, uh, I think pretty much every movie in this list, for me, even among the worst ones, would rank from a low Jaws 2 to a Jaws. I don't think there's anything that I would rank, for me personally, even as a Jaws 3. So that's that's how successful it's been in my mind. How, how about you? Yeah, I would agree with that. For the stuff produced through Marvel Studios, uh, Jaws 2 is the bottom of the barrel. Now, that said, uh, I think you had a little bit of a, a preamble talking about what they had done before the Marvel Cinematic Universe got going. Yeah, because I think it, it kind of managed to get there to explain why they started with Iron Man in the end. Because um, Marvel had been trying to get on the big screen for a long time. I mean, the first time they managed that was 1944 with a Captain America serial. Uh, it's the, the Purple Death. But if you watch that, to me, I don't believe that it was written as a Captain America serial. It takes place in 1944, which is the year it came out. But it's set in the United States. Captain America is not a military experiment. He's a guy with a homemade costume. He's a district attorney who hangs out in a newspaper office and orders people around like he's their boss. I swear that that was written as a sequel to the successful Green Hornet serial. But the company that was making Green Hornets already had sequel plans and didn't buy it. So they sold it to a company that didn't have the rights to Green Hornet. So they slapped another superhero on it. Hmm. And... That was Marvel's last big screen outing for a long time. Stan Lee tried getting it back in the movies. He only had success getting it on TV with some, you know, Red Brown, Captain America movies, Nick Fury, Doctor Strange. You know, his biggest successes with that following the animation of the 60s would be the live action Spider-Man series. And of course, the live action Bill Bixby, Lou Ferrigno Hulk series. Right. And then... You know, the, the next time that they actually made the big screen was Howard the Duck in 1986, which a lot of people didn't associate with Marvel, which is good because it didn't go over well with audiences. And then uh, Ron Perlman bought Marvel Comics, and Ron Perlman had a history of overextending companies to inflate their value on paper and then selling them off and jumping ship right before they went belly up. He did that with Revlon. He did that with a couple of companies. And in the 90s, Marvel was about to go into bankruptcy. And the company called Toy Biz that was owned by, owned by Avia Rod recognized that the Marvel merchandise was keeping them afloat. And if Marvel went down, they went down too. And Avia Rod is a very acute businessman who was looking at the numbers saying, these don't add up. Something's wrong. And when that ship was going down, Avia managed to buy out the company uh, that's an interesting story in its own right. It was covered in detail in a book called Comic Wars by Dan Revive. If you want to know more, check it out there. But ultimately, Aviarad bought it out, and he recognized he was not a storyteller, but there's power in the merchandise, and there'd be more power if we get him on the big screen. So he started pushing for that. And so he started making deals with other companies. So he sold off the rights for Blade to New Line, which was the first movie that really performed beyond expectations. And studios started thinking, okay, maybe we can invest in these. Um, the, all the mutant books, Fantastic Four and Daredevil and Electro were sold to Fox, who started with the financially successful X-Men in the year 2000. And they've been, should we say, extremely hit or miss on their property since then. I think that's a fair uh, description of it. <laughs> yeah, they've had... I mean, Logan is one of the best superhero movies I've ever seen. X-Men Origins, Wolverine, and Josh Trank's Fantastic Four are some of the worst. They're all over the map. Yeah, and uh, but but some of the movies, just, just to hit on it quickly, and X-Men Origins, Wolverine, and X3, I think, are examples of them, uh, yeah. were admittedly not good movies cinematically. There's a lot of things I think you and I could point to and say, this is where they stumbled, and this is where they stumbled, and this is where they stumbled. But that said, I thought both of those were acceptable viewing experiences. If you're sitting in the movie theater, you could just kind of 
immerse yourself in it, and if you're not thinking too hard, they weren't horrible experiences, uh, with the exception of the uh, portrayal of Deadpool. Um, that that uh, that to me is unforgivable. But other than that, I didn't think you they mean were... when they took the Merc with the mouth and sewed his mouth shut. Yes. And and they and they had the actor who was perfect to portray the role, as we've learned later, uh, and didn't allow him a chance to do it. But I think well, yeah, those he... are examples of movies that retroactively were disliked even more than they were when they were you know released in the cinema. I, I think yeah. the, you know word of mouth. I think the internet word of mouth has made them worse than you know their reputation worse than it was when they came out. And I think Spider-Man 3 is also a victim of that, which I'm sure you're going to get to in a moment. Uh, yeah. Not not to say, again, not to say that they're good movies, but there's a, an entertainment level to them that I believe is dismissed because of the internet. Yeah, you they've got a Jaws 4 reputation, but you might be able to ar- successfully argue that they're really Jaws 3. The, well, the three I mentioned, if I were ranking them, I probably, and I'll leave it open to... To movement because uh, I haven't re- I haven't reviewed any of those three on on the show yet, but I would probably say that they were all Jaws three level, yeah. in my personal opinion. But please move on. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, no problem. So, um, but yeah, with Blade's performance and then X Men with Fox followed by Columbia TriStar actually picked up the rights to Spider Man and Ghost Rider, and at least those first two Sam Raimi Spider Man movies. There's very little debate that, you know, they they were extremely well received when they first came out. Now that we have other choices for Spider-Man, some people have changed the way that they view them. But at the time, at least those first two were just rocking it hard. And, you know, Universal picked up the rights to Submariner, which they didn't use. Punisher rights were sold. So there's a lot of development. But Avia Rad always had the dream of seeing the Avengers on the screen. So when he was saying, yeah, our properties are for sale, we can make these multi-million dollar movies and they were making money, one thing that he was hard and fast on, he outright refused to sell the rights to Iron Man, Thor, and Captain America separately. If you wanted any of those three, you had to buy all three and the Avengers. And that ultimately made a lot of things possible because there was a lot of interest in a Captain America movie, especially following the... 9-11 attacks that we don't need to go into in too much detail. This is, you know, a light and fun podcast. Mm-hmm. But there there was a period where Captain America was a sought-after property, and he was saying, you can do it if these two come with. Um, and I should have mentioned with Universal, they they picked up the Hulk, or the Hulk rights, as well as the Namor rights. Um, and they still have some of those rights. Their deal was different from the deal with Paramount. I believe, some other their rights, I believe their rights are to the distribution, not to the actual mm-hmm. character. So that's why Marvel has been able yeah. to use the character in their movies. But if it is a solo Hulk film, I believe Universal has the right to distribute it, which is why we've only seen one Hulk film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And now we're getting a pretty extensive Hulk storyline that's being broken down into three parts between Thor, Ragnarok, Avengers, Infinity War, and Avengers Endgame. Uh, rather than have that take place in a Hulk solo film. Because I think if, if Marvel had the rights for the distribution, we would have seen a, a Planet Hulk movie. Yeah, Planet Hulk would have been its own thing and not a part of Thor Ragnarok. That That's correct. So Universal has the distribution rights on any headline Hulk film until the early 2020s. So I forget if it's 2022 or 2023, but it's somewhere in there. But that... That's kind of the nutshell of where we were. These were proven. And the movies themselves, while they were... These licensed properties were often more accepted by the general audiences than by comic book fans. It's like any adaptation. The more familiar you are with the source material, the more opportunity you have to be let down by filmmakers who make a different choice than what you wanted them to make. And so Marvel is saying, you know what? We've got a history of storytelling We've got Kevin Feige, who's been producer on these films since the X-Men, who understands the movie business. Why don't we start doing it ourselves? So they announced that they were forming Marvel Studios, so they were going to be their own production company and just use others for distribution. And the general public response was, really? 
you're you're gonna go from making comics to making movies? Are you sure you can do that? Uh, they also announced, and we're gonna start with Iron Man. And we went, really? Well, you know, I that was that was a point when they were making that movie that people were saying, oh, you know, he's he's a B-list hero at best. I thought Iron Man, and you know, this is coming from somebody who's collected comics since he was, you know, a preteen. Uh, but I thought Iron Man was fairly well known. Not necessarily that people had read a lot of his books, but just that if you showed the average person a picture of Iron Man, they'd know who that was. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, uh, but that that was my thoughts about it. So I didn't see him necessarily as a B level hero or a C level hero. I think some people have even said. Uh, I thought he was, you know, I thought he was among a significant group of heroes that if you just showed them to the average person who was not a comic collector, they would know who it is. And yeah, I, I don't know that, you know, that average person would know a lot more about Superman other than who he is and that he's from the planet Krypton and that's and it is secret identity is Clark Kent. If you took the average non comic collector who hadn't, you know, been immersed in it, I don't know if they'd be able to tell you a lot more than that. And Superman's probably the biggest A hero going. Yeah, well given that, you know, Superman has Never gone more than what twenty five years without a movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, whereas Iron Man, he's had a couple of cartoons, but a lot of live action people wouldn't know it. Like my 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 parents had no idea who he was. So I, Iron Man, I think if you have ever had a pull list at a comic shop, you know Iron Man and Tony Stark. But if you've never been a regular at a comic shop. I don't even know if you could say Iron Man is Tony Stark, whereas pretty much everyone could tell you that, you know, Superman is Clark Kent and Batman is Bruce Wayne without having to pick up a comic. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not I'm not going to go as far as to mm-hmm. say people would be able to tell you Tony Stark. But I think if you showed them a picture of Iron Man and you said, who is that? They would say, that's Iron Man. Then, you know, they, they may not know who's in the armor. They may not even know that there's a person in the armor. They might think it's a robot of some sort. And there's probably yeah. some some idiot out there who, if you showed it to them, they'd say, oh, that's Robot Man. Uh, but but I think the majority of people would be able to at least have said, and, the, and you know, we can't compare it to now. you got to go back, whatever, 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think pe- most people would say, oh, yeah, that's Iron Man. And then if you asked them for more details, they might have been, you know, stammering and not giving you anything. But I, like I said, yeah. I, I just I thought he was more well-known than people gave him credit for being. Uh, that's it, that said, it doesn't mean that this wasn't a major gamble on the part of the Marvel Studios. Uh, they went into production on this and The Incredible Hulk at this, you know, virtually the same time. Uh, certainly, The Incredible Hulk was, you know, well underway before they knew whether or not Iron Man was going to be successful. Oh yeah, they came out weeks apart. They were both 2008. Iron Man came out May 2nd. Incredible Hulk came out June 13th. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, they so, were committed absolutely to both. But you know, this is again coming off of the potential bankruptcy that you know you spoke about, and they had come out of that, but they weren't on such such solid. Well, actually, you know, Disney hadn't purchased them yet. That's correct. Um, they, so they, they weren't on such solid legs that this wasn't a gamble for them. Uh, I think if, you know, if both of these movies had bombed, that could have been enough to solidify the bankruptcy of the company. Maybe. It was also about 10 years later. So at this time, Joe Quesada had taken over as editor-in-chief in the year 2000, and he he actually did a lot of good for the company and the, the production. So he... He got at least the publication side profitable again. Yeah, profitable, but I don't... Again, you know, with the investment that they made on these movies, I don't know if it was so profitable that they could afford the losses uh, had this had the, had they bombed. That's true, yeah. Because the, the budgets were not insignificant. And when we talk profitable movies and profitable comic book companies, we're talking two different worlds. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, this is... We're talking about an era where... If you sell 100,000 copies of an issue, you're guaranteed to crack the top 10 sales, if not the number one spot. Whereas 100,000 movie tickets sold is an unmitigated bomb, unless unless it's some art house distribution where they only sell like three or four copies. Yeah, where they make the movie for $20,000. Yeah, for something like this, you know... If the studio keeps, say, 65% of the opening weekend box office ticket and you sell 100,000 tickets, that's 65,000 times the, the price of a ticket. You're looking at maybe a million dollars return. And yeah. It's, it's, yeah. yeah, again, and, and while these were not the lavish 
expensive productions that we're getting now out of Marvel Studios, they were not skimping either. I mean, we did have some significant special effects in them. Uh, we had casts with known actors who may have been taking less than their, you know, certainly less than they'd be getting now. Uh, but, you know, they may have been taking a lower salary to be in these movies, and I'm thinking specifically Robert Downey Jr., who was, you know, recovering from all sorts of issues and was not the star he is now. I'm sure, you know, he he took a fairly low salary at that time. Or even Edward Norton, who was not having those issues, but, you know, is, is not necessarily the box office draw and apparently really wanted to be in this movie, the Hulk movie, that is. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, I think there were some concessions to salary made by them, but just the same, they are name actors uh and then we had gwyneth paltrow just going to iron man we had gwyneth paltrow we had uh what's called jeff uh bridges bridges uh you know these these are known known actors who will definitely command a significant paycheck Mm -hmm. so they, they, they were not necessarily made on the cheap uh and looking at that we do have a list on that uh the budget on Iron Man was 140 million, which at that in that at that time that wasn't breaking the bank, but again, if it had been a failure, it could have broken Marvel's bank. Mm-hmm. The the uh, U.S. and Canadian return on it was 318 million and change. I'm going to just round off numbers when I give them, just because it's not uh, it's not worth uh, going into you know single dollars and whatever. But uh, and the worldwide was 585, so that was a fairly big hit. Uh, now, have you seen? And instead of asking you this on every individual movie, have you seen all of the Marvel movies in the movie theater, or are there any that you have not? Uh, I have seen all in theaters that are part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and uh, with the exception of Black Panther, I was there opening night. Yeah, I've been there opening night for a great number of them. I couldn't tell you exactly which ones off the top of my head, uh, but I've seen every one of them in the in the movie theater. Some of them more than once in the movie theater. Uh, so we we got that out of the way early. We don't have to say that on each one. Uh, but just quickly before we move on, let's hit on our impressions of Iron Man. Uh, I know that when I walked out of, I was very impressed by it. I thought it was a great start to things. And you could see it was more grounded in reality than eventually we'd come. Uh, and to me, that's part of the grand plan that Marvel had. was start off a little bit more with reality, and that's why they probably chose a character like Iron Man, which may not have been conventionally the one that people would think of. But you could do that really with a much more scientifically plausible script than you could do with some other ones. Uh, and then you could get more far-reaching as it got accepted by the audience. So I thought that was a brilliant uh, marketing plan. Uh, but I walked away, and I, I really, really enjoyed it. And for a while, it made its way you know, into, into my top movies that, that I just enjoyed. I saw it with some friends, and a week later, I took my son to see it, and he loved it, and it was you know, it was all, all, all happiness at that point. How about you? Yeah, I... When they announced Iron Man, I had I was one of the pessimistic people about this plan for a comic book company making big budget movies based on that character. And then the first teaser dropped and I was thinking, maybe they can pull this off. And I found out later what was happening is that when Avi Arad said, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to make our Avengers movies, he was holding Captain America in reserve because he, he liked the idea of that final scene, which we could talk about when we hit Captain America. So he wanted Iron Man and Thor first. And John Favreau came in with a pitch for Iron Man. And that was another one. John Favreau was at a con and he's like, okay, we're doing the Iron Man movie. And he was asking the fans at San Diego Comic Con, who was your definitive Iron Man artist? And the fans, you know, told him. I can't believe I'm blanking on the guy's name right now, but he had done. Bob Layton? Uh, no, not, not that one. It was much more recent. The one who did Extremis with the CGI models. Oh, yeah, I I know the issues you're talking about. I can't think of who drew them, though. Yeah. I'll, and, I'll look that up while you talk. Okay. But anyway, so Favreau said, okay, great. And it turns out he was available, so they used his actual CGI models. He was a big part in designing what was there. He asked for storylines that people thought were major ones. And one guy came up and said, my favorite issue, I'm sorry, I don't know the issue number because I bought it without a cover. I don't remember who created it. And he kind of described the splash page. And John Favreau said, 
okay, that was issue number this by this writer, penciler, inker, colorist, and letterer. And he rattled that off the top of his head. So that that's actually when I stopped reading the conversation because like, okay, I don't want spoilers. I don't want to know what's going on. But Favreau was clearly the guy to do Iron Man. Okay, uh, Extremis was the penciler, and I would not. I was not going to come up with this off the top oh, of my head. Granov. Adi Granov. Yes. Sorry. I, I wouldn't yeah, come up with did. that off the top of my head, honestly. <laughs> yeah. But no, it, Iron Man and Robert Downey Jr. was perfect casting, which they had to fight for because, as you said, he'd had... Nobody was doubting the quality of the finished product, but he had a history of personal issues that could make production very difficult. And, and I, I think he had fallen into that. public disfavor because of that, and it was it was it was something where, I, at that point, uh, you know, he had substance abuse issues. I don't want to go too far into it, but I think the court of public opinion had pretty much damned him at that point uh, because he, I think he had fallen off the wagon on more than one occasion. So they already felt like they had given him second chances. This is, you know, my my take on it. Whether or not it's accurate, you know, everybody else's uh, memory can rule. Uh, and because of that, I think people were hesitant to give him another chance. And the casting was kind of damned right from the start. And it was one of those internet mentality things where it just seemed to build and build and build. And that could have spelled the end of this right off the bat before it even began, because if that negative connotation had really taken hold, people might have refused to go to the, see, to the movies to see it, and that would have, like I said, killed the project before it even got going. Yeah, which is unfortunate, because now we recognize it's perfect casting, partly because of those issues, because those are issues the character himself has dealt with. But yeah. he... Uh, Downey had to lobby and Favreau was on his corner and that's the main reason it happened because Favreau, you know, he's not listed as a screenwriter because he's not a WGA member, but he was very involved in the story. And yeah, they brought it together and they pulled it off. It was it, it, it was a bit of a watershed moment for, I think, everybody involved. And, and if there's one weakness, and I'm sure there's several weaknesses, but if there's one weakness I can point to early in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is a little bit of the, the dependency now on the Robert Downey Jr. persona uh, that's taken hold when they write other characters, where it feels like they go out of the way to make everybody a little snarky and a little quippy. Yeah, there's there's some characters where... You would never expect that. Like, you know, like when Dr. Black Strange. Widow gets snarty, yeah. Well, Doctor Strange, he, he could, there's areas where he could come across as snarky, but he's not really being snarky. He's just incredibly callous. He's got terrible bedside manner for a doctor. So sometimes he's just being mean and people read it as snarky. But yeah, it's Black Widow in particular. When she cracks jokes, it's like, that's not the Black Widow I've read. She, she's one of the more serious Marvel characters. Yeah, but, you know, and as, I mean, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but as portrayed by Scarlett Johansson, I think she's found her legs beyond which she ever found in the comics. She's she's yeah. one of the characters who's, you know, Iron Man has had a series since 1963. He, you know, whether or not he's well-known in the public consciousness is another matter that we've already talked about, but he certainly has been a cornerstone of the Marvel Universe uh, you know, for forever. Black Widow has been kind of more of a supporting character, uh, had never had a solo series that lasted for any length, uh, and had some, you know, some some issues as far as how she was portrayed in the comics as far as whether or not, you know, consistency was there. Uh, yeah. And she's found her legs in the movies to the point where now, and we'll get to this later, they're talking about a solo Black Widow film uh, in, in the at least in in the conceptual stages at this point. Yep. So we, we went from Iron Man to, you know, less than a month later, or just slightly more than a month later, to The Incredible Hulk. And, you know, that was, that was interesting because of the rights issues that they made that choice, but I think now they were going for... Uh, let's go to a character that everybody's going to recognize. If if they don't recognize Iron Man, they're going to recognize the Hulk. So we're going to take our two bites at the apple here because they clearly did it all at the same time. And the second one is we're going to throw a character out there that everybody knows uh, pretty much universally they did not like the Ang Lee Hulk movie 
which from an artistic point of view may have more merits than it does as a comic book movie, uh, but I know I didn't care for it in any way. Yeah, I found the Ang Lee film was a really good Bruce Banner movie that happened to guest star the Hulk, but it was marketed as a straight-up superhero flick, and that's not the movie he was making. Mm-hmm. So that uh, that that's worth a, a full episode on its own. It's not really part of the cinematic universe, but they relaunched with The Incredible Hulk, and this was probably one of the most plagued productions that they had because, as you said, Edward Norton really wanted to do it. And Edward Norton, again, the finished quality of his work is not in, in question, but he has a reputation to very much be a my way or the highway kind of guy to the point that he wanted creative control over the final musical score and apparently he was such an issue on set they weren't even sure that the movie was going to get done so they didn't give it the marketing push that they gave Iron Man because they thought we may not even get this movie finished because of Norton maybe we don't want to invest any more than we have to yeah now purely from a fan watching the movie point of view as opposed to, to the production in which is a totally different animal but I understand the issues that exist there Edward Norton physically embodies that the part of Bruce Banner so much better than uh, Eric Banya did and as much as I enjoy Mark Ruffalo in the role physically Edward Norton fits my image of Bruce Banner much much more uh, so I kind of still have some regrets that he wasn't able to continue but I understand that, you know, I, I think that the issues went both ways. I think the uh, the producer, producers had some problems with him, but I think he also had some problems with the producers that, you know, he had certain things that he wanted done that he felt were, uh, you know, that, that, that they were short-sighted, that they weren't willing to do. There's talk of, but I've never seen, I've seen some outtakes from it, but there's talk that there's like 78 minutes of outtakes in this movie. And I would love to see the I would love to see the Edward Norton cut. Yeah, it would be very interesting. But yeah, it, like you said, they've recast as Mark Ruffalo by the end of Phase One. And when people asked Marvel why did you recast, they said because these are ensemble pictures and we need a team player. So we did not invite Edward Norton back. And and that that may be perfectly justified. Uh, you know, again, I'm not there in the production, and the and the, the the stories are certainly there of of you know, tension on the set. And you don't want to have that, especially as you start bringing in other big names or people who are not big names yet, but will be big names before we're done with this. Uh, You know, so, you know, there's always the chance of clashes of personalities that could totally just bring down the whole plan at some point. So I don't blame them for changing the part. I'm just disappointed that it had to happen. Yeah, so am I, because it's, I mean, as much as I love Mark Ruffalo's performance, I agree that Edward Norton is a much closer fit, and he also gave a great performance. It would have been nice to have that consistent, but that's that's one of the two major recastings that they did, and they're both coming out of those first two films, actually, because when Incredible Hulk hit and made money, I don't know if it was profitable in theaters, but they recognized they didn't put the marketing push behind it. It didn't quite hit it, even double the budget for the worldwide take i don't know if you want to go through those numbers specifically now sure in uh in the incredible hulk the the budget was 10 million higher than iron man they were at 150 million at this point and the take in the united states was 134 million uh outside of us and canada was 128 million and a worldwide of 263 so it did uh both in the united states and worldwide take in less than half of what Iron Man did. So you could see where uh, where they might look at this and say, we need to retool somewhat to, uh, or rethink how we're going to do this because this one is not the huge success that the other one was. Uh, I guess, you know, from a U.S. and Canada perspective, this movie actually lost money. Yes, but looking at the two of them together, you're looking at, what, a $290 million budget? Mm-hmm. And the worldwide box office of about eight hundred and forty million. Yep. So it was successful, and that's when Marvel publicly stated, "Okay, we're building to the Avengers." They had not made that announcement to the public at any time, although it was heavily rumored and suspected. So 
the next three that they announced, or the next four they announced, the rest of Phase 1 simultaneously were Iron Man 2, Thor, Captain America, First Avenger, and the Avengers were all coming together. That's when they announced Joss Whedon's involvement. And the other recasting, Terrence Howard, was demanding a significant pay increase after Iron Man on the basis of his Oscar nomination. And they, <laughs> they quickly ushered past- him out the door. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was past the budget, and they were like, "Yeah, the movie was successful, but Terrence Howard was not he he was not the primary draw." Yeah, I, and I think that's you know that's Terrence Howard overestimating his own uh, n- the need to have him in the movie. It's really what it comes down to because uh, they recast him now. Don Cheadle again. This this is similar on the Mark Ruffalo thing. He's a fine actor. I think Don Cheadle is is a terrific actor and probably a better actor than Terrence Howard in my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, but physically, I thought Terrence Howard fit the part of Rhodey better than Don Cheadle does. And yet, the movies didn't lose a step <laughs> with the change. No, I I would agree that Terrence Howard looks the part better, but I find Don Cheadle's performance better, not just on its own, but I think Cheadle and Downey have a better rapport than Downey and Howard did. It's in the first Iron Man. I believe that Tony Stark and James Rhodes are lifelong friends because they tell us they are. But when you get Cheadle and Downey together, it's like you feel it. Yeah. You, you feel a relationship between the two of them that you don't feel in the first one. The only, the only scene in the first one where I really truly feel it is when he's getting angry at Tony for the fact that he won't listen to him. And then two seconds later, they're both drunk and talking to each other. Like, you know, like that, that's those, that combination. And I think I base that more on writing and editing than I do acting. Mm. Uh, But that kind of gives you the feeling of like what their friendship really is. Uh, Whereas when they're talking to each other, you don't feel that, that lifelong bond. Yeah. So, so coming off of, the Hulk, we then went to Iron Man 2, and I thought that was an interesting choice, to be totally honest with you, because at that point, we did have an indication that we were putting together the Avengers. We, you know, we had already kind of solidified that in, in uh, the public consciousness, and rather than go to the next character and keep the train rolling, we went for a sequel on Iron Man. Now, I think from a financial point of view, that was probably a wise choice because at at this time now we had a character that was bankable based mm-hmm. on the first movie. So by putting out a second movie of his, we're probably looking at pulling in enough profit to, to take a risk on the next character that we're going to get. So I think that was probably a, a more of a business decision than a creative decision to go to Iron Man 2. Um, and I think this is right around the time this Iron Man 2 came out, May 7th, 2010. So we had about a two-year gap between Iron Man and Iron Man 2. Um, and I think somewhere in that gap is when Disney purchased Marvel, if, if my memory yeah, that is was correct. Yeah, that was 2009. So they, they purchased it. They said that they would retain the deals that were in place. So Paramount was still the distributor on Iron Man 2, but they were not involved in the production. And the Hulk distribution deal still stands. Now, but that was, I, I think Paramount might have also been the distributor on Thor. I'm not entirely sure about that one. Now, I, I know Iron Man 2. Now, I went to see Iron Man 2 in the theater again. You know, I'm going to say that's getting very repetitive already. But uh, I remember walking out of it saying, I don't like this as much as Iron Man, but I do like it. I think it was a good quality movie. And I think this is one that people are a little overly critical of. Uh, and and I, I, I did do an episode on this one with Scott Gardner. And one of the things we talked about was the fact that there's a lot of little things in this that are laying the groundwork for things to come. And I think in retrospect, if you watch it that way, it's more enjoyable than if you're just watching it as a standalone movie. But to me, the, the biggest success in this movie is the whole... Uh, race racing uh, scene with Whiplash. I just think that's one of the best superhero scenes I've ever seen still. Uh, you know, the whole thing with him chopping the cars in half and Iron Man getting the armor and everything. Just really, really well done. And I, I enjoyed this movie very much. Yeah, I, I do like that because that's also the scene where Happy gets a set piece and he's more than just the guy that's there. You know, the director cameo. He 
he actually makes a difference trying to get Tony that suit. Uh, but yeah, I was there opening night, and I I got to say I I listened to the episode. I I put Iron Man two as as a solid Jaws two. It's an enjoyable movie. It is my pick for the weakest of the Marvel movies, but not weak um, because I found that they spent too much time building the Avengers with little one-offs and not enough time telling this story. It was like we had a tangent or detour every few minutes and I wanted it to stay focused. Yeah. Well, and that's exactly, I guess the same point that I'm saying as well is that, you know, Mm -hmm. if you watch it as a standalone movie, it does not have quite the same level of, of pulling you in as it does. If you're watching it now in retrospect, yeah, I think, I think now you know with, with with the history that's been created and seeing everything, I just think it's 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 retroactively a better movie than people gave it credit for. The one scene that I know a, a lot of people were critical of was the, you know, the Iron Man, uh, the drunk drunk Tony Stark party. Uh, a lot of people just didn't like that. You know, once once Rhodey confronts him, that's all well and good. But while he's you know shooting the the watermelons like you know it, it, with his uh chest ray and peeing in his pants you know a lot of people just didn't really appreciate that from what i heard yeah and that part didn't bother me so much it was more the the detour with you know what looked like but apparently wasn't captain america's shield and i mean i watched this with my sister who has not read superhero comics when she does read the very occasional comic it's something from the archie company and, you know, watching it with her on Blu-ray, she was pausing every five minutes going, okay, now what was that about? Because clearly that's a thing. And I was explaining the comic reference and Easter eggs. Mm-hmm. So th- that, there's a lot of, like I said, it, it's still a very enjoyable movie. So saying it's the weakest is not, it's not a slight against Iron Man 2. It's more a, a comment on how good the rest of these really are. Yeah, I, I, and that, I totally never gone agree with that. that. I totally agree with that. Now, just just as in, by way of background, is uh, if people follow the Is It Shows Facebook page, they've seen this. But building up to Avengers Endgame, I've started my rewatch of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I've been posting. You know, Paul is watching Iron Man. Paul is watching The Incredible Hulk. Paul is watching Iron Man Two. Uh, and so far, right now, I'm through Phase One uh, in my rewatch. And I got to say, you know, it's it's just you know each movie has its own merits to the point where I just sit and I get pulled in all over again, even though I've seen them all several times already. Uh, so, you know, this, this one is, does not lack for that. And I think, you, you know, you pretty much hit it on the head that this is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good solid movie and it's, it only pales when you start comparing it and saying, well, I like this one more. And that's not necessarily, you know, as a, you know, when you, when you're looking at it on its own, you're not necessarily supposed to do it that way. It's, uh, we've, we've had the conversation on this show a couple of times where someone has said, well, I rank this movie as Jaws, so this one isn't quite as good, so I have to give it a Jaws 2. So, well, there's a lot more movies than four movies out there. And if we're going to rank them all with four rankings, there's going to be subsets within. Uh, you know, you're going to have a high Jaws and a, and a lower Jaws and whatever. You're going to have, you know, you're going to have movies that are within the same ranking that you're going to like more than others. And I think that's what we find with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that I like all of them. But if I have to put them in order, some are going to rank higher than others. And I think sometimes Iron Man 2 gets a bad reputation because it's lower on people's lists than others are. But when you consider the quality of the cinematic universe on a whole you really shouldn't be blasting this one necessarily and if you don't like it that's fine i never have any problem with other people differing in their opinions i'm just saying uh let's not damn this one for not being the first iron man or you know or whatever other Mm -hmm. one in the cinematic universe yeah so now we then had about a year in fact uh 364 days later Oh, actually, let's hit on the box office for Iron Man 2, which we didn't do. Uh, Iron Man 2 was produced for $200 million, so it's a significant increase uh, on the uh, budget. And it made in U.S. and Canada $312 million, worldwide $623 million. So we're expanding the worldwide uh, box office at this point, and that's, I think, a big thing in... uh, and, and going to get bigger and bigger in Marvel's uh, release schedules. And, and I think it's something they're going to depend on more and more as these go on. Uh, I think you know we'll, we'll see that as we go along. Uh, but again, now 
with a total worldwide of 623 million. I, I have a tough time evaluating the box office because I, I remember back in the day they used to say if you make double your budget, you're good. Uh, and then they got to the point where, well, actually there was a point where they said one and a half times your budget, you're good. Then they got to double, and now they say two and a half times. And I think that is factoring in the fact that there's less less gross to the company uh, or less net to the company on worldwide releases than there are on domestic or worldwide dollars. Uh, so I don't know how you do the math to figure out you know what their profit level is, uh, but I do know that the you know the, the U.S. and Canadian gross is different as far as what profit gets to the company. It it is, and it also depends on which screening you go to. If you go to like Ultra AVX or something where you're paying extra for the 3D, the assigned seating, because the studios were taking such huge cuts of the standard box office, that's one of the negotiating. They said, okay, we'll put out these 3D versions. You could charge people extra for 3D and assigned seating, and you keep 100% of that. There's also a factor, I know, that the further you get from the opening day, the more money goes to the theater as opposed to the company. Right, which uh, is one of the reasons that they really pushed for digital release on the studio end, because now way more people are seeing it in the first two weeks, and they get their bigger cut. Mm-hmm. And that's that's why you know the, the opening weekend numbers are critical uh, when they evaluate these movies. And that's, that's why we get sequels announced right after the opening weekend. Because they're waiting to see those numbers to see whether or not they can justify doing the sequel. Because after that opening weekend, the dollar amounts don't matter as much to the studio. Yeah, and sometimes they're even announcing them before because it's considered a, a show of faith. I mean, they announced the sequel to Green Lantern the week before that one came out. And because, we see where that went. Yeah, but that that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, but yeah, we did come back to Kenneth Branagh's Thor, which yeah. also was setting some things up, not just with the, the post credit scene and stuff like that, but um, it, it was building it. And Kenneth Branagh apparently knows Thor comics chapter and verse too. That's yes. something Brian Bendis said in the meetings. He was blown away by Branagh's knowledge of the source material. And I like how subtle it was. Like I said, with Iron Man 2, there were things that would stop and stand out you know like you know my sister had me explain who the black widow was when she was revealed that yeah iron man's new employee is actually natasha romanoff the black widow agent of shield whereas in thor okay she she asked me who that the guy with the bow and arrow was because if you picked up a bow and arrow and not a gun he's clearly someone Mm -hmm. so i had to point out hawkeye everything else that went by all the easter eggs as the an uninitiated person she didn't realize there was something there. Uh, but things like, I remember watching an opening night in the theater and there was an establishing shot of the little town they're in that made me laugh. And the, a friend of mine sitting next to me, he's like, what did I miss? What, what's the joke? There's in the bottom right corner of the screen, there's a tourism billboard with the slogan journey into mystery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's something that, <laughs> that, that, that they're not, not going to pick up on. And, uh, I'm trying to remember when, at some point, they, uh, no, I guess it's in Ant-Man, so we're way down the road when uh, the guy mentions Tales to Astonish. Yeah, so for the the people listening who are more movie fans than comic fans, in the 60s, Marvel was publishing anthology books. There was They were actually renting DC's printing presses, so they had a limit on how many comics they could publish in a month. So Thor first appeared in the anthology Journey into Mystery, Iron Man was in Tales of Suspense, and Ant-Man was in Tales to Astonish. So yep. that's what the references were, too. But yeah, Thor was great. It had um, I, it had a lot of cameos from creators, the first time since Fox's Daredevil, that they had more than just the Stan Lee cameos. Right, we had J. Michael Straczynski in there. Walt Simonson and, Walt and Louise Simonson were in it. Yeah, so he... Bronick really said, no, these are creators, let's have them in there. Now, I remember going into this one, I had some concerns about what they were going to give us. I didn't want to get all Thor on Earth. I wanted to see Asgard. Uh, I wanted to get a almost a Lord of the Rings feel about it. But I knew we had to get some time on Earth as well. Um, 
I thought, I don't know if it's Brana, I don't know if it's the screenwriters, I don't know if it's the studio, uh, but I thought they found a good balance between what you had to show to to make it viable to be part of the Avengers and showing us the historical or the you know the the mythical background of Thor a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I walked away very satisfied with what we saw of Asgard. Uh, Tom Hiddleston, who I was 100% unfamiliar with going into this, uh, I thought he, you know, he commanded the screen as Loki, and I thought they did a very good job of portraying him as kind of on the fence about things, not pure evil, but certainly not good, <laughs> and uh, yeah. you know, somebody somebody who was very very manipulative, more more. I, th- I thought they did a good job of, of showing him as more of a trickster and, you know, somebody who was who was not necessarily evil, but again, not good at all, and certainly willing to to step over the line when it came to what he was doing. Yeah, he he is the god of mischief. He likes a certain degree of chaos, but when you think about it, it's yeah. almost a more subtle version of the Joker. You know, the Joker yeah. is, is bang you over the head with a giant mallet, whereas he's just tweaking you a little bit. But that mischief, the chaos that he's embracing, uh, is is something that I thought Tom Hiddleston just did really, really well in this particular movie. And then I think the scriptwriters kind of ran with it as it went forward. And, and they show him, you know, back and forth. And some of that I also think is due to the popularity that his character has gained that they don't want to show him as a pure villain anymore. But they do have to show him as somebody who's not necessarily guided by the same moral code as our heroes. Yeah. So I, I just, yeah. you know, I thought he was a great introduction. Uh, a lot of people were down on this movie as far as, you know, where it fell into things, as I recall. Uh, but it did, you know, we, we had a, a resurgence box office-wise to some extent. Uh, this one was $150 million. And, uh, well, it's not a resurgence because we already had the resurgence, excuse me, on Iron Man, but a little bounce back from, from the Hulk, at least. Uh, $150 million was the budget, $181 million U.S. and Canada, $268 million worldwide for a total of $449 million. Yeah, uh, and this, if I remember correctly, is the first one where the, the international really did better than the domestic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really pumped up the, in the international. And, and I guess it makes sense... Because it is a less, it is less of a United States, you know, background movie because of the Asgardian elements. I mm-hmm. think it's it's more, you know, this could be any country really. What we're seeing in this, and uh, yeah. you know, I think that that you know that's something. Again, I think Marvel has embraced that worldwide thing, and I think they've tried to cater to it a little bit without having to really, you know, sell out, sell their souls to do it. Uh, and I, I don't think we've seen too much where it's going to hurt it on the United States-wise, but I think they've done things to just make things a little bit more popular outside of the United States. And I think we're going to see that a little bit in Captain America the First Avenger, which is our next movie, because the Nazis aren't really the villains in this one. Hydra is. Yeah, it's a Nazi offshoot that's worse than Nazis, and that's all you really need to know. Uh, yeah, that was... It was a solid one, but again, Captain America doesn't have the same instant appeal outside of America that some of the other characters do. To the point, I believe, what's released in America as Captain America the First Avenger is just the first Avenger in other areas. Yes. Yeah, and uh, from a personal point of view, this one surprised me in that I loved Iron Man and I enjoyed the sequels. And then seeing this one, I thought, you know what? I like this one more than I liked Iron Man. And I was surprised by that. I didn't expect that. Uh, yeah, th- I had the same reaction. I, I, When I found out the Avengers were coming, I I went to, to Thor and Captain America almost out of a, a sense of fan obligation. Like, I was checking them out opening night, but I wouldn't have been too terribly broken up if I'd missed them. And both of them far exceed my expectations because I never really followed followed either one in the comics. I was reading Thor at the time, but that was more because it was J. Michael Straczynski and I like his work. And yeah. Captain America, it's like, okay, well, I'm gonna definitely going to be seeing the Avengers. I might as well see this one too. Uh, this one was directed by Joe Johnston, who... Of Rocketeer fame. Yeah, that was his directorial debut. He'd already worked on Raiders of the Lost Ark in the art department. So 
yeah, he was familiar with period piece superhero films when he did The Rocketeer, which I, I still enjoy, but I don't know how much of that is just straight-up nostalgia. I, th- I think Rocketeer is more popular with people who are into the genre than film viewers in general. Uh, whereas Captain America kind of transcends that and I think is you know a much more popular worldwide kind of thing. It is. And this is one that was also considered a little bit risky with the casting because Chris Evans was not really a known quantity. A lot of us but knew he him was as known as the human, human torch. torch. Yeah, and that's a very, very different role. It's, it's almost easy to watch it. And this is a definite tribute to him. It's easy to watch the two performances and think you have two different actors. Yeah, that I, Chris Evans may actually be the most capable actor in the Marvel cinematic universe. It's really impressive, especially when you hear some things. I heard a podcast that interviewed the writers of Winter Soldier, which we'll get to. And, you know, a lot of actors are asking for more lines. And they said what blew them away, Robert Redford said, you know, he didn't need four lines of dialogue here. He could do one or two lines and a look and get the same information across. And Chris Evans was doing the same thing. He was coming in as with feedback and saying, I don't need this much dialogue and doing it all physically the way that they would expect from someone with three or four decades of acting experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I think that if you read interviews with him, I think you start to understand that he is a a student of film. He's not just a guy who's <laughs> kind of lucked into this. Uh, you know, he has desires to be a director. He has desires to be in very differing types of movies uh he doesn't necessarily want to just you know he he clearly is embodies captain america in these movies but he doesn't necessarily want that to be his only legacy when all is said and done and i don't you know i can't blame a guy for that uh but i certainly hope that down the line they say you know what we're going to give you a lot of money if you keep coming back and doing this a little bit more (laughs) and then he says yes to it i'll be very happy to hear that you know give him a chance to do his other stuff but you know let's keep falling back to captain america because he does great with it uh and as you said there's an ending scene the the end cap on this one kind of sets us up for the avengers and i know i anticipated it greatly at this point and I'm assuming, oh, yeah. I'm assuming that was fairly universal. Uh, interestingly, yeah, I was all in. Interestingly, my daughter had resisted seeing these movies uh, to this point. I, I had seen each one of these with my son, uh, and he was he and I were very into it. We were enjoying the heck out of him. And then the Avengers was coming out, and I don't know if it was word of mouth or if she was bored or what you know what it was, but she decided she was going to come with us when we went to go see the Avengers. And we're still predating the reserved seating. Uh, you know, you need to buy your tickets well in advance days of uh, movie going at this point. So, you know, we went to the movie theater. We went to a specific theater that we didn't think would be too, too crowded. Uh, and, you know, it, it was a sellout, but you didn't have to show up two hours before and, you know, go on a line around the block or anything. Uh, and we were blown away by it. I have to say, you know, we just loved it, all three of us. And since then, now she's totally on board with all of these as well. Uh and uh, just, just you know, I, I just remember walking out saying, I can't believe they pulled it off the way they mm-hmm. did. I didn't expect the level of cinematic success that they did. And that's not talking box office. That's just talking, sitting and watching it. It, it propelled itself to, to my number one superhero movie of all time very quickly. Yeah, it, it is a great movie. I, I still might put the 78 Superman at number one, but it is easily my pick for the best of phase one. There's no question about that. Yeah, and box office wise, this was uh, this was. I mean, to call it a success is silly. Uh, the box, the the budget was two hundred and twenty million. The U.S. and Canada gross was six hundred and twenty three million, and the worldwide outside of U.S. and Canada was eight hundred ninety five million. So it made one point five billion dollars. It is ranked number seven all-time in the U.S. and Canada, and number six worldwide. That's saying a lot. And that pretty much cemented Marvel Studios, and I think just made it, you know, at this point, I think they had developed a level of trust from the viewers, and there's always been the thought that, you know, eventually they might come up with one that's going to crash and burn. But I think they've developed enough goodwill that people were going to give them a chance, even if they did now. 
and they still, in my opinion, they still haven't. Uh, but just just the same, I I think you know, like I said, they had earned a, the right to fail, and I, you know, the the only thing is, the more success you have, the more success you want. So mm-hmm. now I think the perspective has changed in that a modest success is no longer acceptable. Yeah, especially some of it is social media. Some of it is, you know, the the, the clickbait headlines and the, the dying newspaper industry. But it really feels like if you're writing about something, you can't say it's average. It's got to be either the worst or best thing ever. Well, I, I blame that on the internet. I really do. Uh, the the worst or the best mentality, and it's something I've railed about over and over again. It just bothers me that you can't say, yeah, that was good, and have that be enough. <laughs> it's got to be the best or the worst, and that really does just just irk me. Uh, now, <laughs> now that said, I walked out of this movie saying this is the best. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, maybe I fall into that trap myself sometimes. But when I when I pull myself back and I and I look at things a little bit more clearly, uh, I don't I don't have that that issue and it bothers me a lot like i said and i and and you see it i mean on facebook it's so prevalent the the desire to declare things the best or the worst uh, is just so prevalent and it, it bothers the heck out of me but you know now we had not only a hugely successful movie but this one and i didn't realize it at the time because captain america had actually done it um those were the first two where we had a score that I thought created a truly recognizable uh, theme song for in Captain America for Captain America himself. I didn't even realize it till after the fact, but in the Avengers for the Avengers, when mm-hmm. when when they would group together, you'd hear the the swells of of that particular theme, which has become recognizable. And I kind of like that. I like to me that that gives it an element of transcending the movie theater. That now, if I hear that music, that's what I think of. You know, that that's that's something that to me is is limited to certain properties. You know, you got Star Wars, you got Raiders of the Lost Ark, you have uh, Superman. You know, those are the ones where, or even Batman for that matter. The and, and I guess I can give you the example of the opposite is if you hear the Danny Elfman Spider-Man theme, it kind of still makes me think of Batman. It doesn't really make me think of Spider-Man. I don't feel it's recognizable to Spider-Man necessarily because it's a little too derivative of what we did with Batman. Uh, so I, now I, I I I hold Spider-Man separate, but the Danny Elfman Hulk score from the Ang Lee film—that's one where it's like, it's Danny Elfman, but which Danny Elfman is this? <laughs> that that's the one where I I can't place the movie it's from. Hmm. Well, Danny Elfman has become much like uh, Tim Burton in that he's become a little too recognizable as being himself, in my opinion. So that that brought us to an end of phase one of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, And and in my opinion, a rousing success. Uh, And I I think from the conversation we're having, you'd you'd agree with me on that. Uh, Yeah. So rather than have this be a three-hour show blaine and i are going to say goodbye now and we'll see you in two weeks when we talk about phase two of the marvel cinematic universe thank you everybody for listening in and uh thank you blaine for coming on with me oh thanks for having me and anybody who's got any comments on what we've said on the phase one level of things or any thoughts on phase two and three please feel free to uh email us at jawspodcast at gmail.com See you in two weeks. Before we get started, does anyone want to get out? I am Iron Man. I am Loki of Asgard, and I am burdened with glorious purpose. I have an army. We have a Hulk. I am a god, you dull creature, and I will not be bullied by... God. That's my secret, Captain. I'm always angry. Big man in a suit of armor. Take that off. What are you? Genius billionaire playboy philanthropist. What is and always will be my greatest creation is you. 
You're a laboratory experiment, Rogers. Everything special about you came out of a bottle. We need a plan of attack. I have a plan. Attack. I can't lead a mission when the people I'm leading have missions of their own. Nobody spills the secrets because nobody knows them all. Baskin Robbins always finds out. He's my friend. So was I. An empire toppled by its enemies can rise again. But one which crumbles from within? That's dead. Forever. I'll kill you. And everybody you love. You needed to kill me, but you can't. I know, I tried. I put a bullet in my mouth, and the other guy spit it out. I want the big one. If you can make God bleed, then people will cease to believe in him. And there will be blood in the water. And the sharks will come. I recognize the council has made a decision. But given that it's a stupid-ass decision, I've elected to ignore it. I tried to play ball with these ass clowns. F*** you, Mr. Stark. F*** you, buddy. Language. Nothing goes over my head. My reflexes are too fast. I would catch it. Underoos! Dormammu, I've come to bargain. The city is flying. We're fighting an army of robots. And I have a bow and arrow. None of this makes sense. Tony Stark was able to build this in a cave! With a box of scraps! Return to me again empty-handed. And I will bathe the Starways in your blood. I can't control their fear. Only my own. Because if we can't protect the Earth, you can be damn well sure we'll avenge it. If you step out that door, you are an Avenger. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Earth's mightiest heroes type thing. If you're nothing without this suit, then you shouldn't have it. I could do this all day. Soldiers trust each other. That's what makes it an army. Not a bunch of guys running around shooting guns. Last time I trusted someone, I lost an eye. If you want to stay ahead of me, Mr. Secretary, you need to keep both eyes open. Excelsior. Your ancestors called it magic, and you call it science. Well, I come from a place where they're one and the same thing. Dormammu, I've come to bargain. There's nothing more reassuring than realizing that the world is crazier than you are. Even if the whole world is telling you to move, it is your duty to plant yourself like a tree, look them in the eye and say no. You move. We are...